Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights, so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Kimberly Wong, head of litigation at Cooper's. We will be discussing how to select the right mediator for a case and why that selection is so important. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for a free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals and trial co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Well, thank you for having me. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about how we go about selecting mediators. And in that regard, as far as your beliefs about mediation, do you think that selecting the right mediator is important? Of course. We always try to prepare every case as if it's going for trial, but reality is, is that most cases settle. And so mediation tends to be often the first opportunity to really talk about potential resolution of the case. So having a good, solid mediator is going to set you up for success. In that regard, are there certain things as far as past experience that you initially consider when trying to make decisions about a mediator? Of course, there are a lot of different mediator backgrounds. Some are former plaintiff lawyers, some are former defense lawyers, and then we also have retired judges. And each brings their own unique experience and perspective that could benefit your mediation. So I'm going to speak in broad generalities. And I'm saying that because some of our listeners are going to be former defense lawyers, former plaintiff's lawyers, and former judges. And I don't mean to offend any one of them by grouping them into this collective stereotype. But in your experience, I think we should break them down. When you deal with a past defense lawyer, what are the pros and cons in terms of a past defense lawyer and, and their background as what they bring to the table for a mediator? Actually, some of my favorite mediators are former defense lawyers. They get to see things that we don't get to see and how the sausage is made on the other side. And so they know what the pressure points are for the defense lawyers as well as the adjusters. There's so many things I don't know about how to talk to the insurance adjusters, what information they need. And so they provide that perspective with the plaintiff's lawyers, us, as to what we need to be able to provide them to be more persuasive to get to the reasonable settlement value. They also may have more street credibility with the defense lawyers and the adjusters because they know that they did the same thing that they did and can appreciate their background and how they're looking at the case. So I think those are the two biggest pros for using a defense lawyer because the other side will really respect and trust them ever had experiences with defense lawyer mediators doing things like writing a white paper or an opinion or something to go back to the adjuster to work with a committee to get the number put on the table that's necessary to resolve the case? Surprisingly, I haven't. I ask that only because also I trend to lean towards defense lawyers as my favorite mediators. There are reasons for plaintiff's lawyers or judges, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I've had experiences like that where the defense lawyer on the other side agrees with the mediator but is having some trouble and the mediator has volunteered to make a presentation to the committee or to write a paper to help them understand the exposure. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right because that idea comes from the defense experience of having to do reporting and having to help our words paper the file to properly put 
the right amount of money on the table. Also, and I'm adding on to some of your thoughts about defense lawyers, I've had more than one defense lawyer mediator come into the room and tell me how much they hate insurance companies. And I think no one gets the experience of being mistreated by an insurance company quite the same way as defense firms who work for them and then have their bills audited. Have you had similar comments from defense lawyer mediators? I can't recall, but I'm not surprised. I sometimes find that they have not a vested interest, but the notion that they might be biased towards the defense is actually the opposite. Let's switch into to plaintiff's lawyers as mediators. What have your experiences, pros, cons in that regard been? Well, plaintiff's lawyers have sat in our shoes, and so they know what we're facing in communicating with our clients. And sometimes, as best as we do to explain to our clients what to expect with the outlook on their case, what a reasonable settlement range is, how did the liability might look in front of a jury, how would their damages look, the client sometimes needs to hear from a neutral person to basically back you up. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest pros of using a plaintiff mediator if you find yourself in that situation with a client who needs to hear that. Also, sometimes former plaintiff lawyers, they really know how to communicate with your clients and get through to them in ways that maybe other people don't because they have that experience. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any cons, downsides that you worry about in selecting a plaintiff's lawyer potentially as a mediator? Sometimes the insurance adjuster or the defense lawyer may think maybe this mediator is slightly more biased towards the plaintiff side just because of their background. I think that's probably the biggest one I might come across. I have, and it's very rare, but on occasion I have seen a situation where a plaintiff's lawyer I feel might be leaning a little bit defense-ish in order to make sure that they don't lose credibility because of their plaintiff's background. Have you ever had an experience like that? Not that I overtly saw. Now, leaning into judges, your views on pros and cons for selecting a judge as a mediator. Well, judges have all kinds of backgrounds. Some have served as settlement conference officers, which can be invaluable because they spend every day mediating, trying to resolve cases. And then there are other judges who have extensive trial experience in overseeing trials. So they really know what the outcomes are of these cases if they don't settle at mediation. And they can communicate it to either side, whichever is more useful to communicate to, depending on the situation. So those are the insights that a judge would offer that are unique to them. Do you have certain types of cases that you lean more toward a judge for than others? I don't know if you've run into this situation, but I've had some insurance adjusters or defense counsel will say, we will only mediate with a retired judge in general or for this case. And in those situations, I don't have a choice but to pick a retired judge. I have had situations like that. I find that more frequently comes up, usually in an individual case, And it may be an individual case where there are liability issues or some piece where they feel the imprimatur of a judge saying, well, you know, if this case were before me, I might rule on this particular significant evidentiary issue this way or that way. I would also consider using a retired judge 
for complex cases or cases involving a lot of parties, a variety of legal issues, because there are certain mediators I can think of who are retired judges and they just have an excellent reputation on both sides for their history in resolving cases at settlement conferences. And so they bring that to the mediation realm. I agree with that. I think that there are a lot of great judges who are mediators. There are a few experiences I've had, and it's very few, where, and I use the analogy of how most generals don't make great presidents, they have relied too much on the power of the robe as opposed to the power of persuasion. Those sometimes are not as effective mediators. And I also find that those are the same ones who don't do all the follow-up the same way that I like to see from a, a judge. Right. I think just because they were a judge doesn't mean they're going to be a good mediator. You have to look at what their experience was as a lawyer, but also as a judge. Anything else that we should be considering in terms of past experience, in terms of talking through how to, how to select the right mediator for a case? For everything that we do in practice, trust your gut. So if something feels a little off, then consider someone else. That makes sense. Switching into personal style. Have you had experiences with different mediators having different styles? Absolutely. What types of styles have you seen and what types of styles do you consider when trying to pick the right mediator for a case? So one would be their methodology. I pretty much would only select a mediator who I would say is committed to doing whatever they can to bridge the gap between the parties. I like to use mediators who will either haul you before the mediation to see what's going on or welcome that call. I also love the mediators who will read the whole brief and the exhibits and be very familiar with what's going on. And the ones who are committed to continuing on after mediation's over to do whatever they can to help. The mediator who mediates for the case as opposed to the mediator who mediates for the day. Correct. As we talk about style, I also think style can sometimes include personality. What personality considerations do you have when selecting a mediator for a case? I'm a bit like a judge, temperament and their personality. Unfortunately, I've had experiences where the mediator doesn't realize how they're coming off to our clients a little aggressive, condescending, not listening. And so if I have one of those experiences, I would not use them. You raise a good point. There are lots of people who seem to be getting into mediation and some of them are great, but not all of them bring the same set of skills. And given that there are, are so many mediators out there, it gives us an opportunity to, to really pick the right one for a case. Right. Sometimes you do have to take into consideration who your client is and how they might respond to that neutral. And likewise, you know, if I had an opportunity to pick amongst a few mediators and one of them I know had a similar background to my client and the client might relate to that person or want to hear from them, that mediator may get an edge over the others. Also within the category of style, style also includes mediation method. Are there different mediation methods that you've seen, some of which are better, some of which are worse, some of which are right for one case, but not another? I'm curious to hear your experience on joint sessions, because when I started out in practice, they weren't very common, but they happened on occasion. 
And now I think it seems that the common consensus is no one likes them. They tend not to be effective. It's interesting because when I first practiced, it seemed like there was always a big to-do about a joint session. Have a presentation, get up, bring everyone in, show the show, demonstrate to the other side why you're going to be able to prevail in the case. And over time, it seemed like everyone moved away from that. And the collective learning, and I don't know if you've had this experience in, in kind of those big pomp and circumstance joint sessions, is there's a big joint session and then the mediator has to spend the next hour and a half calming down the other side who just feels like they got dumped on. Yes. I think the joint sessions tend to be polarizing, which is why people aren't doing them anymore, unless both sides actually ask for it. I think you're right. I've seen effective ways of approaching a joint session, which is letting the other side know, look, we'd like to do a joint session. We'd like to show you our view of the case. We don't want to polarize the discussion. We don't expect you to rebut any of the things we're doing. We don't want to embarrass you in front of your client, but we want to show you why we think we're going to be able to prevail in the case. Would you be open to that? And we would encourage you to ask us questions during that joint session. I've seen those translate into taking an entire morning where it's been a very robust back and forth. And the case might not resolve that day, but it certainly helps the other side see things as opposed to the ambush style joint session. And I think so many of the joint sessions were seen as ambush style. Mediator would bring people in, you know, do you plaintiff's lawyer have anything to say? And the plaintiff's lawyer would get up and for 10 minutes would dump on the other side. The other side would feel the need to get up for 10 minutes, dump on the plaintiff's side, and then things would go to hell. Yeah, it's all about the messaging on the joint session and both sides will have to see the benefit of it before you do it. Otherwise, it's just going to be polarizing. But you know, another thing that you could do instead of a joint session, sometimes if you've had the benefit of a focus group, I share parts of what I learned from the focus group because that is the most valuable information is what would a jury say if we took this to trial? And they don't have that insights that you've gathered from a focus group. Agree. And I like sharing that when we have that information. I've found most of the time we share that through a mediator in single session as opposed to joint. Yes. And I was saying that as an alternative to a joint session where you can communicate a similar message of this is how the case will look. And then I would also say it's not quite a joint session, but something that I'd be open to is if the adjuster says, hey, I would like to meet your client just to see a face because sometimes there's no video deposition of the plaintiff or they haven't for some reason taken the deposition yet, which is unusual at that stage. I would be open to that if that's something that they felt that they needed, just especially if our client makes a good presentation. It's not a conversation. It's just a greeting of, hi, nice to meet you. I agree with you. I think that that's, for me, an important tool that we will oftentimes offer to the mediator. Not that we want to have a big drawn out joint session, but I'm sure this is your experience these days. Everyone starts in separate session, but at some point, if the mediator feels it is useful for us to bring in exhibit one, the client, that we can have that joint session. And I usually will have the mediator guide the conversation, you know, have the mediator throw softballs at the client. And we'll talk about this in another podcast. This goes a little bit into the client prep, though, in terms of making sure the client is aware that this might happen so that they're not caught off guard. Other style things that come up are how the mediator approaches the process in terms of learning about the case and learning about positions. 
I like a mediator that's confident but flexible. I tend to lean a little bit on the mediator as to how to make the next move. You know, whether are we going to continue to exchange numbers? Should we switch to brackets? Are we at the point where it'd be worthy to do a mediator's proposal or are we done for the day? Because the mediator is the only one who has the pulse from both rooms. So I want someone who is confident to know what they're feeling from both rooms and also have flexibility to adjust depending on what's going on and make recommendations, of course. That style, that being willing to provide some guidance and be flexible, I think, is critical. It makes the difference between somebody who's going to be able to close the gap that day or later versus one who just, you know, throws up their hands and says, well, can't get it done. Since the pandemic, we've seen how almost everything has rolled into a video or Zoom world, depositions and mediations specifically. Have you had many in-person mediations since this whole COVID mess started? Zero. How about you? We've had two. It seems that people like not having to travel. And I've found that we've been very successful in resolving cases and doing them on video. I found that the two that we chose to do for very specific reasons, it was very beneficial to do those in person. So on the location side, do you have any consideration that you raise with, say, the other side in terms of whether we should do something in person? I personally have not come across a case that I felt would benefit from an in-person mediation since the pandemic began, but I am sensitive to that there are some cases where it would absolutely make sense. Agreed. And in our case, the, the one that I'm thinking of primarily, it was a fatality case and we had a mediator who had just the right warmth for working with people where it was an awful, awful situation. And so I think that it was the mediator's suggestion and request that we meet in person. And for that, I think that was the right choice. Giving this topic a little bit short shrift because I would say 95% of cases are now remote. If we're going to do a physical mediation, are there certain things that you would look for? We, knowing their layout in the office space, where are people being put? What kind of privacy is there? Some places have glass walls. You want to prepare the client for that. There is one mediation facility that for years was beautiful. They had all glass offices with no blinds to bring down. And I would never have a client at one of those mediation facilities if the client didn't have a poker face. You know, like, I can't pick that mediation facility because with this particular client, I'm worried about people walking down the hall. Also, how thin are the walls? Good mediation facilities will put you on the far side of the building from the other side. Yeah. Pivoting into talking about the selection method itself, are there ways that you work with the other side to try to get to that point of the delicate dance of, of selecting the right mediator? What methods do you use? I usually ask the other side to propose five mediators that their client and they would feel comfortable with. Inevitably, I get the same request in a lot of cases. In that Venn diagram of overlap, do you find that you see names that you and the other side can routinely agree on? Sometimes, yes. And then there's sometimes when I initiate the request for five names and they don't give me any names and they insist only on my five names. 
Interesting. When you are doing that, what considerations do you have when you put those names forward? I like to use known commodities because they're the tried and true. I know what I'm getting when it comes to their experience, their methodology, their style, their personality, their success rate. At the same time, I will also be open to new names that they might propose, research and vet them. It's not a hard no, but some names are familiar that you've heard from colleagues that are good quality meteors that you just personally haven't experienced yet. I think of some names recently where I've had people say, oh my gosh, you you haven't mediated with so-and-so yet. Oh, you've got to get her on your list. She is fantastic. And you're right about the known commodity piece. And I think the known, for me, the known commodity piece is you're talking about a lot of time and a lot of money. And it's hard to break free of that concern that you're going to work with somebody who you haven't worked with before. At the same time, I've found that when I've broken free, I've discovered some of my new favorites. Yeah, if you use the same mediator too many times and you get a reputation for that, they might see that there's potential bias there. So that's another consideration. So it's nice to have a larger group of mediators to select from. As we're talking about selecting mediators, have you had any experiences where somebody who normally might not have been picked as a mediator is now on the list because we're all remote now? Yes. And that's one of the greatest benefits of remote mediations is you don't need to pick a local mediator if we're not going to be there in person. So I've actually used a Southern California-based mediator last year for a mediation, and we actually only stumbled upon him because we were running out of options from local mediators that we knew. And frankly, I have never used a Southern California mediator before, and you know what? The other side hadn't either. And we were going based off of availability. Nowadays, mediators are booking many months in advance. And so defense counsel had said, I recently went to this mediation where the plaintiff had proposed this mediator and said they were excellent. I've done some vetting on my end and I would be agreeable to that mediator. And then I went ahead and called a bunch of Southern California consumer attorneys and asked if they had any intel on this person. And they were raving about this mediator who was actually a former defense lawyer. And I thought, you know, this is probably a good case to try it out. It wasn't a complicated liability case, so it was more straightforward. So I didn't feel like I was taking as much of a risk. And we got a great result. And I asked the mediator about, you know, how often do you mediate with people in Northern California? Is this a rarity? And he said, no, I do mediations all across the state. I even do some outside of the state now that there's so many remote mediations. I actually chatted with him before I agreed to the mediation to get some of his background. And I just got a good sense from him because I asked, do you have a pulse on what's going on in these different counties, you know, that you're not practicing in? And he did. And that's where I could see that coming up as a concern. Sometimes it has been a challenge to find a mediator in, say, the Central Valley. There just aren't as many from that region as there are from Northern and Southern California. And when pre-pandemic, when we have proposed people from the Bay Area, 
you'll get pushback. Like so-and-so is going to have too high numbers. They don't understand the geography. They don't understand the area. It sounds like this person had done his homework. Yes. And rightfully, I needed to as well. I, I kind of felt like I was doing a little deposition. And I asked him, so how do you know about what a San Francisco jury would do versus a jury in Fresno? And he gave me some answers about he has mediations all across the state. So he, with cases that are venued everywhere, he also has a good network of mediators that he would reach out to to bounce ideas off of. And he had decades of experience as a defense trial lawyer himself that he could build upon. And I don't want to ignore the nugget that you dropped in there in selecting a mediator. You called the mediator before you decided on the mediator to have a conversation. Now, well, it makes sense that anyone can do that. I can say, well, I've done a lot of vetting of calling other lawyers, looking at people's backgrounds. I can't think of a time where I actually was creative enough to say, you know, I want to give this person a shot, but I want to have a conversation first. Have you done that before? No, this was a unique situation because I wanted to feel comfortable using a mediator that neither side had used before. And it was great because I loved his personality and temperament. I asked him about his style. Like, do you do joint sessions? Like, what is your approach? Do you, are you involved after? You know, that was really important to me in selecting a good mediator. And I also want to point out, I don't know how other people vet mediators with colleagues, but I don't really just get, oh yeah, they're great. They should be on your list. No, I want to know details. Give me an example. Like what made them stand out? They went the extra mile because they kept calling even when I never thought we would get a result. Like they followed up three months later when some mediators, they give up after a couple days. So knowing the specifics really tells a lot. Very helpful. The other thing that is a concern for me is making sure that the list that one provides includes some diversity, both in terms of ethnic background, but also sex. Because I find oftentimes when I ask for a list of five from the other side, I will get five old white dudes. And with that bias towards you working with people that you've worked with before, it furthers the bias towards the same privileged group always in that same role. When you're pulling your list together, do you do anything purposeful as far as that's concerned? I actually do the same thing. And you're right. Unfortunately, though, when I do propose that list, Usually the female mediators or the diverse mediators are rejected solely because the other side doesn't have experience with them. And so it's about giving them the opportunity because these are experienced mediators. And so I just keep offering because sometimes the other side agrees. One of the tactics we've used as far as that's concerned is have our five list all female. Then you don't have the one male problem meaning that they pick the one on the list. Makes sense. As you are getting down to the brass tacks of making a selection and going forward with a mediator, have you ever had an experience where something about going down the track with that particular mediator tells you that it's not going to work? Honestly, I haven't, but I always believe in trusting your gut. So if something feels off, then it's probably a good time to look at other options. And very rare for me 
but I can think of one occasion where in the pre-mediation phone call, the person was frustrated that they had to have a pre-mediation phone call and you could just pick up on the energy in the communication. And against my better judgment, I went forward with that mediation. It was one I hadn't worked with before and not surprisingly, it didn't go anywhere significant and the mediator didn't have much in the way of follow-up, which was different than what the person's profile, the reputation that that person had. But if I had gone with my gut instinct in that first phone call of no, not right, I would have saved a lot of time and a lot of effort and the effort of having to convince the other side that we should do a second session, but not with the same person. And some heartache on the client's part too. And Yeah. Thank you for being willing to come and talk about this today. Anytime. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at cooperist.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions for how you approach selecting a mediator. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting. Happy hunting.